Prince, Chapter 1. Once, when I was six years old, I saw a magnificent picture in a book called True Stories from Nature about the primeval forest. It was a picture of a boa constrictor in the act of swallowing an animal. Here is a copy of the drawing. In the book, it said, Boa constrictors swallow their prey whole without chewing it. After that, they are not able to move, and they sleep through the six months that they need for digestion. I pondered deeply then over the adventures of the jungle, and after some work with a colored pencil, I succeeded in making my first drawing, my drawing number one. It looks something like this. I showed my masterpiece to the grown-ups and asked them whether the drawing frightened them. But they answered, Frightened? Why should anyone be frightened by a hat? My drawing was not a picture of a hat. It was a picture of a boa constrictor digesting an elephant. But since the grown-ups were not able to understand it, I made another drawing. I drew the inside of a boa constrictor so that the grown-ups could see it clearly. They always need to have things explained. My drawing number two looked like this. The grown-up's response this time was to advise me to lay aside my drawings of boa constrictors, whether from the inside or the outside, and devote myself instead to geography, history, arithmetic, and grammar. That is why, at the age of six, I gave up what might have been a magnificent career as a painter. I had been disheartened by the failure of my drawing number one and my drawing number two. Grown-ups never understand anything by themselves, and it is tiresome for children to be always and forever explaining things to them. So then, I chose another profession and learned to pilot airplanes. I have flown a little over all parts of the world, and it is true that geography has been very useful to me. At a glance, I can distinguish China from Arizona. If one gets lost in the night, such knowledge is valuable. In the course of this life, I have had a great many encounters with a great many people who have been concerned with matters of consequence. I have lived a great deal among grown-ups. I have seen them intimately, close at hand, and that hasn't much improved my opinion of them. Whenever I met one of them who seemed to me at all clear-sighted, I tried the experiment of showing him my drawing number one, which I have always kept. I would try to find out, so if this was a person of true understanding. But whoever it was, he or she would always say, that is a hat then I would never talk to that person about boa constrictors or primeval forests or stars. I would bring myself down to his level. I would talk to him about bridge and golf and politics and neckties. And the grown-up would be greatly pleased to have met such a sensible man. Little Prince, Chapter 2 So I lived my life alone without anyone that I could really talk to, until I had an accident with my plane in the desert of Sahara six years ago. Something was broken in my engine, and as I had with me neither a mechanic nor any passengers, 
I set myself to attempt the difficult repairs all alone. It was a question of life or death for me. I had scarcely enough drinking water to last a week. The first night then, I went to sleep on the sand a thousand miles from any human habitation. I was more isolated than a shipwrecked sailor on a raft in the middle of the ocean. Thus, you can imagine my amazement at sunrise when I was awakened by an odd little voice. It said, If you please, draw me a sheep. What? Draw me a sheep. I jumped to my feet completely thunderstruck. I blinked my eyes hard. I looked carefully all around me, and I saw a most extraordinary small person who stood there examining me with great seriousness. Here you may see the best portrait that later I was able to make of him, but my drawing is certainly very much less charming than its model. That, however, is not my fault. The grown-ups discouraged me in my painter's career when I was six years old, and I never learned to draw anything except boas from the outside and boas from the inside. Now I stared at this sudden apparition with my eyes fairly starting out of my head in astonishment. Remember, I had crashed in the desert a thousand miles from any inhabited region, and yet my little man seemed neither to be straying uncertainly among the sands, nor to be fainting from fatigue or hunger or thirst or fear. Nothing about him gave any suggestion of a child lost in the middle of the desert a thousand miles from any human habitation. When at last I was able to speak, I said to him, But what are you doing here? And in answer, he repeated very slowly as if he were speaking of a matter of great consequence. If you please draw me a sheep. When a mystery is too overpowering, one dare not disobey. Absurd as it might seem to me, a thousand miles from any human habitation and in danger of death, I took out of my pocket a sheet of paper and my fountain pen. But then I remembered how my studies had been concentrated on geography, history, arithmetic, and grammar. And I told the little chap, a little crossly too, that I did not know how to draw. He answered me, that doesn't matter. Draw me a sheep. But I had never drawn a sheep. So I drew for him one of the two pictures I had drawn so often. It was that of the boa constrictor from the outside. And I was astounded to hear the little fellow greet it with, no, 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 I do not want an elephant inside a boa constrictor. A boa constrictor is a very dangerous creature and an elephant is very cumbersome. Where I live, everything is very small. What I need is a sheep. Draw me a sheep. So then I made a drawing. He looked at it carefully. Then he said, No, this sheep is already very sickly. Make me another. So I made another drawing. 
My friend smiled gently and indulgently. You see, he said, that this is not a sheep. This is a ram. It has horns. So then I did my drawing over once more. But it was rejected too, just like the others. This one is too old. I want a sheep that will live a long time. By this time, my patience was exhausted because I was in a hurry to start taking my engine apart. So I tossed off this drawing and I threw out an explanation with it. This is only his box. The sheep you asked for is inside. I was very surprised to see a light break over the face of my young judge. That is exactly the way I wanted it. Do you think that this sheep will have to have a great deal of grass? Why? Because where I live, everything is very small. Uh, there will surely be enough grass for him, I said. It is a very small sheep that I have given you. He bent his head over the drawing. Not so small that, look, he has gone to sleep. And that is how I made the acquaintance of the Little Prince. The Little Prince, chapter 21. It was then that the fox appeared. Good morning, said the fox. Good morning, the Little Prince responded politely, although when he turned around he saw nothing. I am right here, the voice said, under the apple tree. Who are you? asked the Little Prince and added, you are very pretty to look at. I am a fox, the fox said. Come and play with me, proposed the little prince. I am so unhappy. I cannot play with you, the fox said. I am not tamed. Ah, please excuse me, said the little prince. But after some thought, he added, What does that mean, tame? You do not live here, said the fox. What is it that you are looking for? Um, I am looking for men, said the little prince. What does that mean, tame? Men, said the fox. They have guns and they hunt. It is very disturbing. They also raise chickens. These are their only interests. Are you looking for chickens? No, said the little prince. I am looking for friends. What does that mean, tame? It is an act too often neglected, said the fox. It means to establish ties. To establish ties? Just that, said the fox. To me, you are still nothing more than a little boy who is just like a hundred thousand other little boys and I have no need of you, and you, on your part, have no need of me. To you, I am nothing more than a fox, like a hundred thousand other foxes. But if you tame me, then we shall need each other. To me, you will be unique in all the world. To you, I shall be unique in all the world. I am beginning to understand, said the little prince. There is a flower. I think that she has tamed me. It is possible, said the fox. On earth, 
one sees all sorts of things. Oh, but this is not on earth, said the little prince. The fox seemed perplexed and very curious. On another planet? Yes. Are there hunters on that planet? No. Ah, that is interesting. Are there chickens? No. And nothing is perfect, sighed the fox. But he came back to his idea. My life is very monotonous, the fox said. I hunt chickens, men hunt me. All the chickens are just alike, and all the men are just alike. And in consequence, I'm a little bored. But if you tame me, it will be as if the sun came to shine on my life. I shall know the sound of a step that will be different from all the others. Other steps send me hurrying back underneath the ground. Yours will call me like music out of my burrow. And then look, you see that grain field down yonder? I do not eat bread. Wheat is of no use to me. The wheat fields have nothing to say to me. That is sad. But you have hair that is the color of gold. Think how wonderful that will be when you have tamed me. The grain, which is also golden, will bring me back the thought of you. And I shall love to listen to the wind and the wheat. The fox gazed at the little prince for a long time. Please tame me, he said. I, I want to very much, the little prince replied, but I have not much time. I have friends to discover and a great many things to understand. One only understands the things that one tames, said the fox. Men have no more time to understand anything. They buy things already made at the shops. But there is no shop anywhere where one can buy friendship. And so men have no friends anymore. If you want a friend, tame me. What must I do to tame you? asked the little prince. You must be very patient, replied the fox. First, you will sit down a little distance from me, like that, in the grass. I shall look at you out of the corner of my eye, and you will say nothing. Words are the source of misunderstandings, but you will sit a little closer to me every day. The next day, the little prince came back. It would have been better to come back at the same hour, said the fox. If, for example, you come at four o'clock in the afternoon, then at three o'clock I shall begin to be happy. I shall feel happier and happier as the hour advances. At four o'clock I shall already be worrying and jumping about. I shall show you how happy I am. But if you come at just any time, I shall never know at what hour my heart is to be ready to greet you. One must observe the proper rites. What is a right? asked the little prince. Ah, those also are actions too often neglected, said the fox. They are what make one day different from other days. 
one hour from other hours. There is a rite, for example, among my hunters. Every Thursday they dance with the village girls. So Thursday is a wonderful day for me. I can take a walk as far as the vineyards. But if the hunters dance at just any time, every day would be like every other day, and I shall never have any vacation at all. So the little prince tamed the fox. And when the hour of his departure drew near, Ah, said the fox, I shall cry. It's your own fault, said the little prince. I never wished you any sort of harm, but you wanted me to tame you. Yes, that is so, said the fox. But now you are going to cry, said the little prince. Yes, that is so, said the fox. Then it has done you no good at all. It has done me good, said the fox, because of the color of the wheat fields. And then he added, go and look again at the roses. You will understand now that yours is unique in all the world. Then come back to say goodbye to me, and I will make you a present of a secret. The little prince went away to look again at the roses. You are not at all like my rose, he said. As yet you are nothing. No one has tamed you, and you have tamed no one. You were like my fox when I first knew him. He was only a fox like a hundred thousand other foxes. But I have made him my friend, and now he is unique in all the world. And the roses were very much embarrassed. You are beautiful, but you are empty he went on. One could not die for you. To be sure, an ordinary passerby would think that my rose looked just like you, the rose that belongs to me. But in herself alone, she is more important than all the hundreds of you other roses, because it is she that I have watered, because it is she that I have put under the glass globe, because it is she that I have sheltered behind the screen because it is for her that I have killed the caterpillars, except the two or three that we saved to become butterflies, because it is she that I have listened to when she grovelled or boasted, or even sometimes when she said nothing, because she is my rose. And he went back to meet the fox. Goodbye, he said. Goodbye, said the fox. And now here is my secret. A very simple secret. It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. What is essential is invisible to the eye. The little prince repeated so that he would be sure to remember. It is the time you have wasted for your rose that makes your rose so important. It is the time I have wasted for my rose, said the little prince, so that he would be sure to remember. Men have forgotten this truth, said the fox, but you must not forget it. You become responsible forever for what you have tamed. You are responsible for your rose. I am responsible for my rose, the little prince repeated, so that he would be sure to remember.
Glass by Laura Rousseau Part 1. The Desert I've always loved the desert. You sit down on a sand dune. You see nothing. You hear nothing. And yet, something shines. Something sings in that silence. What makes the desert beautiful, the little prince said, is that it hides a well somewhere. Chapter One, Sleeping with the Chickens. Even before the boy appeared, I thought about the people crossing the desert. I imagined how scrub brush scratched their legs as they walked at night, how the sun dried out their eyes during the day, how their hearts pounded when they threw their bodies to the ground, hiding from La Migra. I imagined them pressing their cheeks against the dust, thinking about the happy lives they would have if only they reached the end of this desert. After I got my license, the May I turned 16, I started driving to the desert outside of Tucson, an hour's drive from the Mexican border. I'd park the Volkswagen, then walk alone in the oven heat. I let my thoughts wander around the cacti and agave, along dried riverbeds. Within five minutes, I'd get thirsty and gulp down water from the huge bottle I carried. As long as I had water, I could forget about everything. Imagine I was the only person on the planet, a stranger dropped into the desert. One night in June, at midnight, I was in bed reading The Little Prince, a book I'd already read once and underlined for World Lit class. I was lost in the story, right there with the pilot, alone in the sand dunes, when the little boy appears out of nowhere. Right then, the phone rang. I walked into the kitchen in my nightgown, my bare feet slapping the clay tile, my mind still in the sand dunes of another planet. I picked up the phone. Hello? Officer Douglas here, Border Patrol. I need to speak with Juan Gutierrez. My stomach tightened. I knocked on Mom and Juan's door. Juan! Border Patrol's on the phone. During the phone call, Juan listened and nodded gravely. Yes, yes, I see. Seven dead? His voice cracked. I have no idea how my business card got in this kid's pocket. I sat at the kitchen table, tracing the deep, worn scratches in the wood, trying not to stare at the tears leaking out of Juan's eyes. Mom disappeared into the bedroom, and a few minutes later calmly reemerged, her keys jangling. She'd already changed into a gauzy dress and turquoise necklace. She carried herself in a European model way, her neck long, never slouching, not even in the middle of the night under the weight of bad news. Only two delicate furrows on her forehead betrayed her worry. That and her British accent grew a bit more pronounced as it did whenever she got emotional. Just as Juan was hanging up the phone, Great Aunt Dika thudded into the kitchen, her eyes wide and alarmed. What, what is it? she cried. What is it? For Dika, being woken in the middle of the night meant bombings and attacks. 
She came from Bosnia and she'd materialized in our lives six months earlier. Dika is how she said her name. <laughs> Trying to understand Dika was like deciphering a code. V's were really W's, D's were really TH's. Rolling R's were R's. Her words pierced the air loud and shrill as if she were perpetually in the middle of a big rowdy party. Be patient with her, Sophie, Mom kept telling me. <laughs> the woman barely survived a war, but I was suspected that she was a naturally hyper person. Juan rubbed his face. The muscles in his arms flexed, moving the snake tattoos. Seven Mexicans died crossing the desert. He spoke in Spanish, as he always did when he felt deeply about something. One boy survived. They found my business card in his pocket. On the way to the hospital in the puttering Volkswagen bus, Mom clutched the wheel and came up with the possible scenarios. Juan, meanwhile, sat hunched in the passenger seat, his head in his hands. He'd come from Mexico in the 80s, illegally across the desert. He got his residency after he married my mom nine years ago. Since then, when people crossed the desert to Tucson, Juan sometimes put them up for a night. He gave them food and water and always refused payment. His motives were good. But what he did was against the law. Mom finally put her foot down about it. Only in absolute emergencies, she said, could these people stay at our place. Mom sped down First Avenue, her eyes flickering nervously from the rear view to the side view mirror. I knew she was wondering if we'd get in trouble, if the Border Patrol had discovered we'd been helping immigrants. You know, Juan, she said in Spanish, Maybe you did business with someone who knew this family? Who knows? Maybe the card was passed around a lot. The boy could have found it on the street. Dika, meanwhile, muttered in the background, This poor boy, poor, poor boy. She spoke her own strange version of English. Her accent moved from Slavic to Spanish to German. She was an onion, layers of language peeling off here and there, exposing bits of her 60 years of life. Not much, just enough to make you wonder. The hospital was a surreal place at one in the morning, a maze of fluorescent corridors. A man in a wrinkled orange shirt and braces met us outside the boy's room. He shook hands with each of us and said he was with CPS, Child Protective Services. The kid's a foundling, the man said. That's what the law calls them, a young child found alone. He mumbled, trying to hide his braces. We're pretty sure his parents died crossing the desert. He looks at least five years old, but he won't talk. When the sheriff asked him about his parents, he pointed out their bodies. Problem is, we can't ID the bodies, and we don't know the kid's name. He's probably in shock, Mom said. His parents dead? Three days in a desert? Three days in desert, Dika cried. That boy is hungry now. She barreled down the bright hallway toward the vending machines. The CPS man swung open the door and we entered the room. 
There was a tiny life on the bed, lost in a hospital gown spotted with hippos and giraffes. His eyes were open, but lifeless. A tube was taped to the back of his hand. Foundling, what a strange word. It made me think of the fairy tales that Juan used to tell me. Didn't they start with foundlings in the wilderness who turned out to be magical? Hola, amigo, Juan whispered. Mom touched the boy's thin wrist. Como estas, mi amor? No answer. Sure you don't know this child? The CPS man asked. Juan shook his head. The man sighed. I was hoping you might. He explained what would happen to the boy. If no relatives claimed him, he would become an American citizen under the care of CPS. I looked at the boy, a dark-skinned little prince, a lonely apparition from the desert. Around his neck hung a tangle of strings attached to square bits of leather imprinted with saints. On his cheek, a pinkish spot of skin, the color of a conch shell spiral, maybe a wound healing, maybe a birthmark. Then what would happen to the little guy? Juan asked. Foster care, adoption. Dika appeared in the doorway with a pack of Fig Newtons. We take him! She ripped open the plastic with her yellowed teeth, shoved a cookie in her mouth and passed the package around the room. The man took one politely. We take him, Sophie, yes? Dika looked at me. She was always trying to make me an accomplice in her plans. I shrugged and glanced at Mom and Juan. They were ignoring her and talking in low voices. I thought about it. The possibility of taking him. A little brother might be cute, but this boy on the hospital bed wasn't exactly cute. To tell the truth, he scared me. He was living proof of one of my worst fears. Your parents really could die and leave you alone in the world. For the first seven years of my life, it was just mom and me. No father, no grandparents, no aunts or uncles. Early on, I figured out that if anything happened to mom, I would be alone on this planet. Then, when Juan came along, you'd think I'd have felt safer. My fears of a parent dying were just multiplied by two. Dika sat her wide hips on the bed, half smushing the boy and pulled out a cookie. A key for you, mi amor. You wouldn't expect a Bosnian refugee to speak nearly perfect Spanish, but Dika boasted that she spoke a dozen languages. She half reclined on the hospital bed and smiled proudly, watching him munch on the Fig Newton. That's the first he's eaten, the CPS man said. Dika handed the boy another Fig Newton. Of course we take him, she said again. Well, if no next of kin claim him, you could certainly apply to be his foster family. He gave each of us a sticky handshake. We'll be in touch then, he mumbled, and escorted us out of the room, past a few sleepy-eyed reporters in the corridor. By Laura Rousseau. Chapter 1, Section 2 I always thought of myself as a free-floating, one-celled amoeba, minding my own business. The other kids at school were all part of a larger organism. 
The soccer girls made up one organ, a set of coordinated interdependent cells. They always dated the soccer guys, another organ connected to them by veins and arteries. The speech team, student government, animal rights club, everything was part of the whole. Even the hoodlums gold chains and graffiti tags added sparkle to the organism. Me? I was a shapeless amoeba, something that didn't belong. Not particularly noticed, definitely not appreciated, just an amoeba swimming around aimlessly. Back in middle school, I'd hung out with a group of girls. My longtime friend Jasmine was the glue holding us all together. But when she abandoned us for Catholic school, we scattered. Loneliness was tricky. A cup filled at one moment with freedom and the next with emptiness. Maybe the emptiness part is what made me want to connect, at least a little, with the foundling. In the week after the hospital visit, some families who'd heard about the orphan on Latino radio stations tried to claim him, but no one could describe his distinguishing characteristic, the pink birthmark on his face. By the time the CPS man called us to ask if we wanted to be the boy's foster family, Dika had convinced us by forever moaning, Oh, this poor, poor boy! We said yes. We gave the boy a futon on the living room floor next to the fish tank. Since we weren't sure how long he'd stay, we didn't get him a real bed. From my room, through the cracked door, I watched him watching the fish, his face bathed in the purple glow of the aquarium light. In the middle of his first night with us, I woke up to pee, and he was gone. I panicked, checked all the rooms in the house, and finally ran outside. Three quarters of a moon shone bright in the sky. Into the yard I ran, barefoot, calling him, Nino! I wove around the giant agave, past the gnarled mesquite tree, ignoring the spines in my feet. There, at the end of the yard, behind the crates of old bottles, he lay, sprawled out in the moonlight, next to the wire mesh chicken coop. His mouth hung open, inches from the dirt. I went back to the house for an old down comforter and spread it out, then moved his fragile body onto it. I settled down beside him, wrapping my body around his, my pale arms around his brown ones. Principito, I whispered, little prince. He turned onto his other side, facing me now, his eyes open, a patch of dirt on his cheek just above the birthmark. How had he survived in the desert? They must have saved water for him, rationed it out drop by drop. Why did you come outside? I asked in Spanish. Nothing. Will you come back inside? A slight shake of the head. He had seen his parents die. I'd never seen anyone die, never even seen a dead person. I'd imagined it plenty, though. When I was little, something as small as mom picking me up ten minutes late threw me into a wild panic. Was she killed in a crash? Was she murdered? Worries wore down a familiar path inside me. 
Anything could send me running down that path. I studied the foundling's face, inches from mine, and tried to enter his mind. What had his parents looked like when they died? What do heat exhaustion and dehydration do to a body at the end? His breath smelled faintly of milk. His body seemed both solid and ethereal, composed of soil and moonlight. Maybe he was hoping to dissolve into the night, become a shadow, a spirit, join his parents. Did he imagine his mother and father floating around in the sky? Did he hope that outside in the moonlight they might find him so far from home? The second night, it was Dika who slept outside with him. Maybe she too tried to lure him in, or maybe knowing it was hopeless, she simply settled her giant body next to his. Dika was a murky pool of unanswered questions herself. Twenty years ago, she'd supposedly bounced around Europe with my great uncle doing who knew what. They'd lived in Madrid for three years, which is where she picked up Spanish. But how she split with him and ended up back in Bosnia in the middle of a war was anyone's guess. On the boy's third day with us, over a plate of steaming quesadillas, Dika leaned over to him and in Spanish said, Yeah, enough! Tell us your name, niño! Without a pause, he said, Soy Pablo. But he stopped right there and ignored the onslaught of questions. What's your last name, Pablo? Uh, your town's name, your address. Weeks passed without another word from him. More and more, I wanted to cut my hands around him like a shivering bird, breathe life into him, some kind of spiritual CPR. Dika and I took turns sleeping with him. On my nights, I brought a flashlight and book and read to him in English. He always stayed awake, watching my lips move. He seemed soothed by my voice, by the rhythm of words. First, you'll sit down a little ways away from me over there in the grass. I'll watch you out of the corner of my eye, and you won't say anything. Language is the source of misunderstandings. But day by day, you'll be able to sit a little closer. After I closed the book, I lay beside him and whispered to him in English and Spanish, saying anything that came into my head. Principito, know what? Our chickens used to lay eggs. Juan says they're too depressed to lay eggs now. Quien sabe por qué? Sometimes I found myself whispering things that he couldn't possibly understand. Silly things. Know what? I'm an amoeba, Pablito. Floating through life. Maybe you're an amoeba too. Maybe we're two amoebas together. He watched me and listened and said nothing. And for some reason... I convinced myself that when he became a whole person one day, hopefully sooner than later, so would I.